She should be. And she sounds so like radio now. Speaking of radio, here we are. Oh no. Yep. <laughs> Welcome back. The second session of the day. Second session of the day. It's such a nice day out there. The readings are so riveting this week. We yes. just couldn't, we could not. And joining, oh, and again, I'm Travis Cookia. <laughs> I'm Andrea Zillow. And I'm Paulette Cameron. That's right, everybody. This week's special guest appearance <laughs> is the one and only Paulette Cameron. Paulette, you're a very well-seasoned vet of the airwaves. <laughs> airwaves, not podcast waves. Yes, but... The real radio. The tell real radio, yeah. Tell us the real radio waves. Um, I don't really know what to tell you. What? Where I had a show at CITR in Vancouver. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty legit. Yeah, with Nardwar. <laughs> He's after us. What? And then, yeah. <laughs> Super legit. Yeah. And then I have a show at CKDU, but I can't do it now because it's on Friday mornings and we have tech class. So as I sit oh, in tech wow. class, my sister hosts the Paulette and Josepha show, <laughs> but she just calls it the Josepha show now. Appropriately. Oh, Appropriately. Which makes sense. I get it. Think of the, I mean, Friday mornings, B3 Friday mornings are probably the most exciting morning it's pretty of intense. the week. It's I very know, intense. Yeah. It's very, I can't uh, multitask in that way. No. It would be pretty impressive, though, if you could, uh, like, remotely, <laughs> remotely do that. Remotely do the radio show? Maybe we should start doing two, or Ghosts of Magic. During like in the middle class? of class. Just in the middle of class. Yeah, just really mixed up. Okay, idea. so, enough chit-chat. Let's get down to the hard, hard facts to here. We are reading... What are we reading here? Little Aldo Rossi. Little Aldo Rossi, The Architecture of the City. Now, that's the whole book. We're looking at chapter one, The Structure of Urban Artifacts, The Individuality of Our Urban Artifacts. It's going to be quite the quite the heavy read here. So There's lots of pictures, though. Don't worry. <coughs> so follow along if you can. I may have to. That's right. Yeah. You yeah. can get around. Um, yeah, so, Paulette, how we do this is just kind of paragraph by paragraph, yeah, section yeah. by section. Should we get some... <laughs> nice. We got so the we are, we're beach party. We're um, oh, yeah. appropriately recording from uh, the cemetery yes. down the street. Ghosts of very, <laughs> very spooky it's around here. It's quite ghastly. Yeah, it yes. is. Ghosts of Medjack. Yeah. Andrew got tripped by a ghost on our way in. Yeah, it's true. They were like, what are you doing recording in our... Yeah, we're barely we're barely making it through this one, so we're like, it's okay. We're not recording in your space. We're recording with you. That's yep. right. Exactly. It's pretty sweet. Okay, so um, yeah, let's just dig into this and uh, see where it comes all along. Enjoy. Yeah. So uh, again, it's chapter one, the structure of urban artifacts. And I'll start off. So um, yeah, so we just kind of go paragraph by paragraph. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, our description of the city will be concerned primarily with its form. This form depends on real facts, which in turn refer to real experiences. Athens, Rome, Paris, the architecture of the city summarizes the city's form, and from this form we can consider the city's problems. By architecture of the city, we mean two different things. First, the city seen as a gigantic, man-made object, a work of engineering and architecture that is large and complex and growing over time. Second, certain more limited but still crucial aspects of the city, namely urban artifacts, which like the city itself are characterized by their own history and thus by their own form. In both cases, architecture clearly represents only one aspect of a more complex reality of a larger structure. But at the same time, as the ultimate verifiable fact of this reality, it constitutes the most concrete possible position from which to address the problem. 
We can understand this more readily by looking at specific urban artifacts, for immediately a series of obvious problems opens up to us, for us. We're also able to perceive certain problems that are less obvious. These involve the quality and the uniqueness of each urban artifact. In almost all European cities, there are large palaces, building complexes, or agglomerations that constitute whole pieces of the city and whose function now is no longer the original one. When one visits a monument of this type, for example, the Palazzo della Regione in... How do I say that? Regione. Regione! <laughs> in Padua? Padua, Pad- yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> one is always surprised by a series of questions intimately associated with it. In particular, one is struck by the multiplicity of functions that a building of this type can contain over time and how these functions are entirely independent of the form. At the same time, it is precisely the form that impresses us. We live it and experience it, and in turn, it structures the city. Where does the individuality of such a building begin, and on what does it depend? Clearly, it depends more on its form than on its material, even if the latter plays a substantial role. But But it also depends on being a complicated entity which has developed in both space and time. We realize, for example, that if architectural construction that if the architectural construction we are examining had been built recently, it would not have the same value. In that case, the architecture in itself would be subject to judgment, and we could discuss its style and its form. But it would not yet present us with that richness of its own history, which is characteristic of an urban artifact. In an urban artifact, certain original values and functions remain. Others are totally altered. About some stylistic stylistic aspects of the form we are certain. Others are less obvious. We contemplate the values that remain. I am also referring to spiritual values. And try to ascertain whether they have some connection with the building's materiality. And whether they constitute the only empirical facts that pertain to the problem. At this point, we might discuss what our idea of the building is. Our most general memory of it as a product of the collective and what relationship it affords us with this collective. It also happens that when we visit a palazzo like this one in Padua, I don't know why I can't say that properly, <laughs> uh, or travel through a particular city, we're subjected to different experiences different impre- and different impressions. There are people who do not like a place because it is associated with some ominous moment in their lives. Others attribute an auspicious character to the place. All these experiences, there's some constitute the city, it is in this sense that we must judge the quality of a space, a notion that may be extremely difficult for our modern sensibility. This was the sense in which the ancients consecrated a place, and it presupposes a type of analysis far more profound than the simplistic sort offered by certain psychological interpretations that rely only on the legibility of the form. So we skipped over some pictures there. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some photos. The first being of... Palazzo della Regione in Padova. <laughs> which looks like a lovely place. <laughs> Are we gone? <laughs> uh, it, it looks like a lovely place. It looks like there's kind of an active street market going on in this. There's people around. Some, some colonnaded mm-hmm. buildings. Yeah. Little piazza. Is a little dude right there? Yes, tiny man. It's amazing, okay. Ruby's far away, I think. Uh, tell you what, spot the tiny man. <laughs> the entered to win our contest. 
Uh, you can barely stand it. Contest. I don't know. Figure it out. Anyways, we got a contest going. First element of the contest, Scott find the, the tiny, tiny man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that we're talking about. That we're there talking are about. A few tiny men, yeah. but this one is the particular and tiny man. And if you want to be entered to win, you can come to myself, Paulette, or Andrea um, with your laptop or whatever. With show, the yellow man. Show us the tiny like man, mm -hmm. and uh, and your name will be included to win the prize of our we barely can't stand it contest. Barely can't stand it. Yeah, rolls off the tongue. Next page. Much, well, many more images of the uh, it, Palazzo. It's the same building. Is it same not? place. Yeah. Uh, getting some cross sections here, some idea of the structure of kind of these multiple stalls or bays or whatever you want to call them. So I guess we'll find out more about it after. But It says here, yeah. drawing of the remains of the Salon della Regione ruined by a hurricane on oh. August 17th, 1956 by Giorgio Fassati. Below oh. ground floor plan as it existed 1425 up to today, according to the reconstruction, by a machete, 13th century walls in black. Hmm. Huh. 1425. It's old. A little old. And it lasts all the way to 1956. That's probably, it's a pretty good constructione there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think it's, it's my turn. My turn. Okay. Yeah. So we need, as I have said, only consider one specific urban artifact for a whole string of questions to present themselves. For it is a general characteristic of urban artifacts that they return to us, they return us to certain major themes, individuality, locus, design, memory. A particular type of knowledge is delineated along with each artifact, a knowledge that is more complete and different from that with which we are familiar. It remains for us to investigate how much is real in this complex of knowledge. I repeat that the reality I'm concerned with here is that of the architecture of the city. That is, its form, which seems to summarize the total character of urban artifacts, including their origins. Moreover, a description of form takes into account all of the empirical facts we have already alluded to and can be quantified through rigorous observation. This is in part what we mean by urban morphology, a description of the forms of an urban artifact. On the other hand, this description is nothing but one moment, one instrument. It draws us closer to a knowledge of structure, but it is not identical with it. Though all the students of the city, <laughs> sorry, you notice my screen is getting dark. Yeah, it keeps, it gets like dark and then light and then dark and then light. So strange. Um, so sorry if I mess up any words here, it's because I can't see them. Although all of the students of the city have stopped short of consideration of the structure of urban artifacts, many have recognized that beyond the elements they have enumerated, there remained the aim de la cité, or in other words, the quality of urban artifacts. French geographers, for example, concentrated on the development of an important descriptive system, but they failed to exploit it to conquer the ultimate stronghold. Thus, after indicating that the city is constituted as a totality, and that this totality is its raison d'etre, <laughs> reason for being, <laughs> reason for being, uh, they left the significance of the structure they had glimpsed unexamined, nor could they do otherwise with the premises from which they had set out. All of these studies failed to make an analysis of the actual quality of the specific urban artifacts. The urban artifact as a work of art. 
I will later examine the main outlines of these studies, but first, it is necessary to introduce one fundamental consideration and several authors whose work guides this investigation. As soon as we address questions about the individuality and structure of a specific urban artifact, a series of issues is raised which, in its totality, seems to constitute a system that enables us to analyze a work of art. As the present investigation is intended to establish and identify the, the nature of urban artifacts, we should initially state that there is something in the nature of urban artifacts that renders them very similar, not only metaphorically, to a work of art. There are material constructions, but notwithstanding the material, something different. Although they are conditioned, they also condition. It's interesting when we're talking about artifacts like this because they're so separated from like how they were created or the time they were created or the purpose that they were created for that I think that's when for me things start to become art that are just old because I don't understand them as being useful anymore mm. it's like I've got to kind of reimagine this different world where where that was a thing you know like you see those butter churning things or like those old scrubbing yeah, like, boards they become yeah. like almost kitschy to us yeah it's like it's so far yeah the idea of using it for its actual purpose is, is so far removed that, hmm. that that could be going hmm. um okay so this aspect of art oh just hold on one second let the urban environment um. quell itself uh, the aspect of art in urban artifacts is closely linked to their quality, their uniqueness, and thus also to their analysis and definition. This is an extremely complex subject. <laughs> For even beyond their psychological aspects, urban artifacts are complex in themselves, and while it may be possible to analyze them, it is difficult to define them. The nature of this problem has always been of particular interest to me, and I'm convinced that it directly concerns the architecture of the city. If one takes any urban artifact, a building, a street, a district, and attempts to describe it, the same difficulties arise, which we encountered earlier with respect to the Palazzo della Regione in Padova. Some of these difficulties derive from the ambiguity of language, and in part, these difficulties can be overcome. But there will always be a type of experience recognizable only to those who have walked through their, the particular building, street, or district. Thus, the concept that one person has of an urban artifact will always differ from that of someone who lives that same artifact. These considerations, however, can delimit our task. It is possible that our task consists principally in defining an urban artifact from the standpoint of its manufacture. In other words, to define and classify a street, a city, a street in a city, then the location of this street, its function, its architecture, then the street systems possible in the city and many other things. We must therefore concern ourselves with urban geography, urban topography, architecture, and several other disciplines. The problem is far from easy, but not impossible, and in the following paragraphs we will attempt, to anal attempt an analysis along these lines. This means that, in a very general way, we can establish a logical geography of any city. This logical geography will be applied essentially to the problems of language, description, and classification. Thus, we can address the fundamental questions as those of typology, which have not yet been the object of serious systematic work in the domain of urban sciences. At the base of existing classification, there are too many unverified hypotheses which necessarily lead to meaningless generalizations. By using those disciplines to which I have just referred, we are working toward a broader, more concrete, and more complete analysis of urban artifacts. 
The city is seen as the human achievement par excellence. Perhaps too, it has to do with these things, with those things that can only be grasped by actually experiencing a given urban artifact. This conception of the city, or better, urban artifacts, as a work of art, has in fact always appeared in studies of the city. We can also discover it in the form of greatly varying intuitions and descriptions in artists of all eras and in many manifestations of social and religious life. In the later case, it has always been tied to a specific place, event, and form in the city. So I'm just trying to relate this to the lecture that we just had. Yeah. Right. Um, and he is trying to take into consideration all these different aspects. Mm. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah, getting a greater understanding of what we're... It sounds like they... That up until this point... The writer, I forget who it is. Rossi. Um, yeah, it feels like it really hasn't been approached. Like, as a whole, the idea of the urban fabric here. Hmm. Like, you know, this... That seems weird. <laughs> yeah, but I mean... Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's just one of those things. So, I like it though. Yeah, I guess I think I'm, I like it. It's still yeah. kind of obscure to me. Yeah, I'm I'm curious what he'll have to say about I don't know, sort of this idea of like form mm -hmm. sort of speaking to the function of the building and mm. you know, these special buildings that we have. <laughs> sort of I don't know, like I like I guess I like that the sort of ideas that we we're talking about, like in the last one, Jane Jacobs, mm. about how you know, it can be for the specific function, but then that can change, and then it almost right. makes it a more interesting building. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, it's the... Yeah, nice. I just okay. keep referencing the lectures that we had by Brian when he spoke about any particular culture and them having kind of a style or an identity in all of their objects, so like even the cups they drink out of and the lights they use. That's I don't know why, but I'm not thinking in a building scale right now. I keep thinking about artifacts, mm. like forks and knives. But I, yeah. Well, he, interestingly, like, I was looking up some of Rossi's work, and mm -hmm. he did industrial design as well. Okay. So he has these, they almost look like, I don't know if they're teapots or French presses or something, mm -hmm. but they looked a lot like the um, floating theater that he oh, did. Oh, hmm. wow. <laughs> so. Cool. I don't know. There's definitely, like, an aesthetic that yeah. works his way through all mm -hmm. scales of is kind of using artifact instead of form. Like, he's, like, a building, a street, a district. And, I don't know. Anyway, we'll, we'll find out. Um, where was Where I? are we? By using these disciplines? Did we do that? Yeah, I think it's a... Um, <laughs> meaningless generalizations Thanks. is where I left off. Oh. Okay, I think it was... Then me. you finished off, I think, <laughs> with... Oh, um, yeah, by using those disciplines? Yeah. So, the, the question of the city is the work of art? Sure. Yeah. The question of, of the city as a work of art, however, presents itself explicitly and scientifically oh, yeah. above all in relation to the conception of nature of collective artifacts, and I maintain that no urban research can ignore this aspect of the problem. How are collective urban artifacts related to works of art? All great manifestations of social life have in common with the work of art the fact that they are born in unconscious life. This life is collective in the former, individual in the latter, but this is only a secondary difference because one is a product of the public and the other is for the public. The public provides the common denominator. Setting forth the problem in this manner, Claude Levi Strauss brought the study of the city 
into a realm rich with unexpected developments. He noted how more than other works of art, the city achieves a balance between natural and artificial elements. It is an object of nature and a subject of culture. It's pretty awesome. Mm. Uh, Maurice Halwax <laughs> advanced this analysis further when he postulated that imagination and collective memory are typical characteristics of urban artifacts. The studies of the city, which embrace its structural complexity, have an unexpected and little-known precedent in the work of Carlo, Carlo Catin, Cataneo. Cataneo? Cataneo never explicitly considered the question of the artistic nature of urban artifacts, but the close connection in his thinking between art and science as two concrete aspects of the development of the human mind anticipates this approach. Later I'll discuss how this concept is, how, this, how his concept of the city is the ideal principle of history. The connection between country and city and other issues that he raised relate to urban artifacts. While at this point I'm mostly interested in how he approaches the city, in fact, Catano, Catan, <laughs> Catanio, <laughs> I don't, every time, uh, never makes any distinction between city and country since he considers that all inhabited places are the work of man. And women. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Quote, uh, every region is distinguished from the wilderness in this respect, that it is an immense repository of labor. This land is thus not a work of nature, it is the work of our hands, our artificial homeland. Mm. City and region, agricultural land and forest, become human works because they are an immense repository of the labor of our hands. But to the extent that they are our artificial homeland and objects that have been constructed, they also testify to values. They constitute memory and permanence. The city is in its history. Oh, the city is in its history. <laughs> Hence the relationship between place and man and the work of art, which is the ultimate decisive fact shaping and directing human evolution according to an aesthetic finality affords us a complex mode of studying the city. Naturally, we must take into account how people orient themselves within the city, the evolution and formation of their sense of place, space. This aspect constitutes, in my opinion, the most important feature of some recent American work, notably that of Kevin Lynch. It relates to the conceptualization of space and can be based in large measure on anthropological studies and urban characteristics. Observations of this type were also made by Maximilian Sore using such material, particularly the work of Marcel Moss on the correspondence between group names and place names among Eskimos. For now, this argument will merely serve as an introduction to our study. It will be more useful to return to it after we have considered several other aspects of the urban artifact of the city that is as a great comprehensive representation of the human condition. Just going to point out here, it seems like they're writing from a point that this, they haven't actually started writing yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, still like, setting it up. Really I guess we're in the up. first chapter of an entire book here, though. Right. Right? True. Yeah. Um, okay, I will interpret this representation against the background of its most fixed and significant stage, architecture. Sometimes I ask myself why architecture is not analyzed in these terms, that is, in terms of its profound value as a human thing that shapes reality and adapts material according to an aesthetic conception. That's the example I'm going to use now when people say, like, oh, what is architecture? Sometimes I ask myself why. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, booyah! <laughs> um, it is, in this sense, 
not only the place of the human condition, but itself a part of that condition and is represented in the city and its monuments, in districts, dwellings, and all urban artifacts that emerge from inhabited space. It is from this point of view that a few theorists have tried to analyze the urban structure, to sense, its, sense the fixed points, the two structural junctions in the city, those points from which the activity of reason proceeds. I will now take up the hypothesis of the city as a man-made object, as a work of architecture or engineering that grows over time. This is one of the most substantial hypotheses from which to work. It seems that useful answers to many ambiguities are still provided by the work of Camillo Sete, who, in his search for laws of the construction of the city that were not limited to purely technical considerations, took full account of the beauty of the urban scheme, of its form. Quote, We have at our disposal three major methods of city planning and several subsidiary types. The major ones are the gridiron system, the radial system, and the triangular system. The subtypes are mostly hybrids of these. Three, artistically speaking, not one of them is of any interest, for in their veins pulses not a single drop of artistic blood. Oof. Ouch. Harsh. Yeah. <laughs> All three are concerned exclusively with the arrangement of street patterns, and hence their intention is from the start a purely technical one. A network of streets always serves only the purposes of communication, never of art, since it can be, since it can never be comprehended sensorily, can never be grasped as a whole except in the plan of it. In our discussions so far, street networks have not been mentioned for just that reason. Neither those of ancient Athens, of Rome, of Nuremberg, or of Venice. They are of no concern artistically, because they are inapprehensible in their entirety. Only that which a spectator can hold in view, what can be seen, is of artistic importance. For instance, the single street or the individual plaza. End quote. So what year is this reading from, do you remember? Is it like, how old is this? Because they're using phrases like Nuremberg as like the center of Germany mm -hmm. and... I mean, I know we've got some photos here. And they here use the that term are... Eskimo, which was not... Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah that's odd as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, just give us a little context uh, here. Trying to find that... Oh, MIT Press, again. Okay. Just can't get enough of those guys, 19... might be better. 1931? No, 1982. Oh, 1982. No, that's when Rossi was born. Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, uh, this is the 80s. So 82, so it's still, like, last of old world okay. thinking shreds but anyways interesting interesting to note um especially because i asked that because they're saying the streets are like just too big to comprehend and it was like well like no the maps do a pretty good job of kind of <laughs> like i know it's a little misdirected with some things like we're learning about these interior spaces that you can't actually go to but are considered open space but you can get a good sense of streets i think in the urban fabric yeah, and it seems like all types of civilizations have used these types of devices, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so, I don't know. There's some validity to planning. challenge this reading as we read it. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, so, right here on the other hand. Oh. Sites? Seats? Cite? I don't seats? Know. Yeah, I think it's Cite. A domination. 
Admonition. <laughs> Admonition is important for its empiricism. And it seems to me that this takes us back to a certain American experiences, which we mentioned above, where artistic quality can be seen as a function of the ability to give concrete form to a symbol. Sorry, what did we say this was? You get Cite? Cite? Cite's lesson beyond question helps us to prevent many confusions. It refers us to the technique of urban construction, where there is still the actual moment of designing a square, and then a principle which provides for its logical transmission, for the teaching of its design. But the models are always somehow the single street, the specific square. On the other hand, Cite's lesson also contains a gross misconception in that it reduces the city as a work of art to one artistic episode, having more or less legibility rather than to a concrete overall experience. We believe the reverse to be true, that the whole is more important than the single parts, and that the only urban artifact in its totality, from street system and urban topography down to the things that can be perceived in strolling up and down a street, constitutes this totality. Naturally, we must examine this total architecture in terms of its parts. We must begin with a question that opens the way to the problem of classification, that of the typology of buildings and their relationship to the city. This relationship constitutes a basic hypothesis for this work, and one that I will analyze from various viewpoints, always considering buildings as moments and parts of the whole that is the city. This position was clear to the architectural theorists theorists of the Enlightenment. In his lesson at the École Polytechnique, Durand wrote, just as the walls, the columns, etc., are the elements which compose buildings, so buildings are the elements which compose cities. It's typological questions. <laughs> the city, as above all else, a uh, human thing, is constituted of its architecture and of all those works that constitute the true means of transforming nature. Bronze Age Men and women adapted <laughs> adapted the landscape to social needs by constructing artificial islands of brick, by digging wells, drainage canals, and water courses. The first house sheltered their inhabitants from the external environment and furnished a climate that man could begin to control. The development of an urban nucleus expanded this type of control to the creation and extension of a microclimate. Neolithic villages already offered the first transformations of the world according to man's needs human needs, we can say, and the artificial homeland as old. Ooh, look at all these wow. pictures. <laughs> Picture time, okay. Various types of foundations, wow. Yeah, so we've got, looks Let's... like rammed earth here almost, yeah. or uh, some interesting grid patterns. I guess soak these in for yourselves. There's so much here to really describe. Yeah. It's, it's kind of difficult. I will say, though, good opportunity to... Uh, Add to our treasure hunt contest here. Oh. So somewhere uh, there's illustrations of what looks to be a writing implement. It's really hidden hard in to there. Find. It's hidden in there. I don't know, guys. You might be hiding in plain sight. You might be think you're looking for one thing, but the answer is something totally different. So what's the prize if you find all of these things? Oh, you barely can't stand it. You oh. can't bear to know. Was it like a high five? Oh no, it's a prize. No, oh, it's a prize. Okay. And he's yeah. actually referring to it right now. You just don't even. Oh, know. Yeah, I know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. It. yeah. It will all barely become clear. Yeah. Stand it. Basically, uh, the uh, prizes that we're giving away are all ghost themed, oh. or uh, beyond like. <laughs> 
the uh, the underworld or whatever, you know, like this next life thing. So they're out of this world. Yeah. So again, um, this next one in illustration pages is a writing implement, and remember, it's it might be hiding in plain sight, but Why it might be it might be something sneaky altogether. A writing implement among all of these foundations is curious. Yeah, well, I'm actually it says well, I'm not gonna say. Yeah. Because then we give it away. Give it away. Anyway, and again, I could be picking something else. Perhaps everyone who will bring me, uh, or any of us, answers to this question uh, will be wrong. <laughs> but you get best two out of three to win the prize. So there you go. Okay. Ooh, okay. So. Seville, Seville. Photographs. Spain, Milan. Alleyways. We have some nice little alleyways to walk down. Mm-hmm. Don't those look nice? I know. Kind of want to be there eating an ice cream. Mm. Would be the end of the world. No, it might be, though. My turn? Yeah. In precisely this sense of transformation, the first forms and types of habitation, as well as temples and more complex buildings, were constituted. The type developed according according to both needs and aspirations to beauty. A particular type was associated with a form and a way of life, although its specific shape varied widely from society to society. The concept of type thus became the basis of architecture, a fact attested to both by practice and by the treatises. It therefore seems clear that typological questions are important. They have always entered into the history of architecture and arise naturally whenever urban problems are confronted. Theoreticians such as Francesco Milizias never defined type as such but statements like the following seem to be anticipatory. The comfort of any building consists of three principal items, its site, its form, and the organization of its parts. I would define the concept of type as something that is permanent and complex, a logical principle that is prior to form and that constitutes it. One of the major theoreticians of architecture Quaterme de Quincy. What a name. Q to Q. Understood the importance of these problems and gave a masterly definition of this type of model. Quote, the word type represents not so much the image of a thing to be copied or perfectly imitated as the idea of an element that must itself serve as a rule for the model. The model, understood in terms of the practical execution of art, is an object that must be repeated such as it is. Type on the contrary, is an object according to which one can conceive works that do not resemble one another, that don't resemble each other at all. Mm. Everything is precise and given in the model. Everything is more or less vague in the type. Thus, we see that the imitation of types involves nothing that feelings or spirit cannot recognize. Okay, okay, wait. So the model is something that is precise and kind of laid out, but a type gives room for more variation. Yeah, yeah so I, I saw that. Like, okay. yeah. like a courtyard building right. can take many different forms, but yeah. it always is organized around a courtyard. It's a type. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that's me. Oh, no. Oh, or is it you? Yeah, it's me. Okay. I think, yeah. but I don't know where <laughs> yeah. we are. Yeah, we keep okay. on going. Um, we also? Yeah. We also see that all inventions, notwithstanding subse- subsequent changes, always retain their elementary principle in a way that is clear and manifest to the senses and to reason. It is similar to a kind of new nucleus, are those nucleus? <laughs> nucleus around which the developments um, and variations of forms to which the object was susceptible gather and mesh. Therefore, 
A thousand things of every kind have come down to us. And one of the principal tasks of science and philosophy is to seek their origins and primary causes, so as to grasp their purposes. Here is what must be called type in architecture, as in every other branch of human inventions and institutions. We have engaged in this discussion in order to render the value of the word type, taken metaphorically in a number of works, clearly comprehensible, and to show the error of those who either disregard it because it is not a model or misrepresent it by imposing on it the rigor of a model that would imply the conditions of an identical copy. In the first part of this passage, the author rejects the possibility of type as something to be imitated or copied, because in this case there would be, as he asserts in the second part, no creation of the model. That is, there would be no making of architecture. The second part states that in architecture, whether model or form, there is an element that plays its own role, not something to which the architectonic object conforms, but something that is nevertheless present in the model. This is the rule, the structuring principle of architecture. In fact, it can be said that this principle is a constant. Such an argument presupposes that the architectural artifact is conceived as a structure and that the structure is revealed and can be recognized in the artifact itself. As a constant, this principle, which we can call the typical element, or simply the type, is to be found in all architectural art artifacts. It is also then a cultural element, and as such can be investigated in different architectural artifacts. Typology becomes, in this way, the analytical moment of architecture, and it becomes readily identifiable at the level of urban artifacts. Thus, typology presents itself as a study of types of elements that cannot be further reduced elements of a city as well as of an architecture. The question of monocentric cities or of buildings that are or not centralized, for example, is specifically typological. No type can be identified with only one form, even if all the architectural forms are reducible to types. The process of reduction is a necessary logical operation, and it is impossible to talk about problems of form without this presupposition. In this sense, all architectural theories are also theories of typology, and in an actual design, it is difficult to distinguish the two monuments. Moments. <laughs> two moments. <laughs> type is thus a constant and manifests itself with a character of necessity. But even though it is predetermined, it acts dialectically with technique, function, and style, as well as with both the collective character and the individual moment of the architectural artifact. It is clear, for example, that the central plan is a fixed and constant type in religious architecture. But even so, each time a central plan is chosen, dialectical themes are put into play with the architecture of the church, with its functions, with its constructional technique, and with the collective that participates in the life of that church. I tend to believe that housing types have not changed from antiquity up to today. But this is not to say that the actual way of living has, has not changed, nor that new ways of living are not always possible. The house with a loggia is an old scheme. A corridor that gives access to rooms is necessary in plan and present in any number of urban houses, present in any number of urban houses. But there are a great many variations on this theme among individual houses at different times. So like speaking of the house we're in right now, which is the Ghost Magic House <laughs> of the cemetery. Didn't we? Did we start this podcast in the sunshine? Yeah, we did. Yeah, and now, and now the sunshine's left. It's over there. Oh, we're yeah. just in the shade now. We're in the shade now. We're in the shade. 
So, in case you weren't aware, the sun... Sun moves. The sun moves, actually. It does the sun move, yeah, throughout the, the day. The yeah, the earth moves. <laughs> Everything moves around the earth. <laughs> That's the only thing that makes sense to me. We're kicking it old school here. Uh, just And just for a little slight commentary here. Yeah. Like, it is... Uh, this is a good reading. It's interesting, the mm-hmm. perspectives. I'm getting little nuggets along the way, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I have to say, I... Uh, sunshine. For a little bit more sunshine. <laughs> Do you want to move over to the sunshine? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, it's okay. We'll keep on going. But um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, okay, so ultimately, we can say that this type uh, is the very idea of architecture, that which is closest to its essence. In spite of changes, it has always imposed itself on the feelings and reason as the principle of architecture and of the city. While the problem typology has never been treated in a systematic way and with the necessary breadth, today its study is beginning to today its study is beginning to emerge in architecture schools and seems quite promising. I'm convinced that architects themselves, if they wish to enlarge and establish their own work, must again be concerned with arguments of this nature. Typology is an element that plays its own role in constituting form. It is a constant. The problem is to discern the modalities within which it operates and, moreover, its effective value. Certainly, of the many past studies in this field, with a few exceptions and save for some honest attempts to redress the omission, few have addressed this problem with much much attention. They have always avoided or displaced it suddenly pursuing something else, namely function. Since this problem of function is of absolutely primary importance in the domain of our inquiry, I will try to see how it emerges in studies of the city and urban artifacts in general and how it has evolved. Let us say immediately that the problem can be addressed only when we have first considered the the related problems of description and classification. For the most part, existing classifications have failed to go beyond the problem of function. And we have some more images. Woohoo! Uh, Interesting plans, looking more at some urban fabric here. Plan of the House of Aurigi, above and Serapide, below Ostia Antica Roma, as reconstructed by Idologis Mondi. I don't know if you guys need to know that. Maybe I shouldn't be huh. reading that. Um, courtyard house type. There you go. Oh, there nice. you go. You nice. foresaw the example. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, they're banging one. these illustrations at us here. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Another good opportunity, I think, to Karl Markshoff. see some some hidden messages. So, um, <laughs> so in the Karl Markshoff, the question is, how many windows are there <laughs> in not only the elevation drawings but also the photo? And I'm not talking. I'm you not mean, entirely. Like all page, like both pages. Both pages, okay. and I want you to include. So, if you've got a, if you've got six millions in a window, that's six windows. Ooh, no, that's yeah, yeah. not how so, a window works. So, this is yeah, yeah. So, for this contest, we're Holy we're thinking about like individual. One, two, three, four, five. Don't give six, away the eight. answer, Paula. Holy. Yeah. So that's the thing. So just just tell me how many windows there are in in everything on page eleven, and uh, you could. Maybe have a chance to win. Enter the contest. <laughs> we'll see. Well, we that might be, that might be barely bearable. Yeah, it's unbearable. Yeah. Isn't it barely standing? Yeah, it's barely yeah. everything. There's <laughs> yeah. a theme here. Oh. I, there's, been been a bug, there's been a bug climbing on my leg for like a really long time that I was... 
trying to be polite yeah. <laughs> and not move. There we go. We are dealing with bugs out here. Dealt We're with dealing that. with the streets. We're dealing next with some dampness. The next noise. challenge for this competition should be if there's another bug on one of the screens. Yeah. Which word it's standing on the other <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Just kidding. Yeah, there, there. You know what? There will be one final clue. It will be heavily animally related. <laughs> speaking this biologic thing and uh yeah and then you come with all the answers and you can be entered in the contest okay. if you actually bring all the answers you win the contest if you bring some of the answers you can be entered to win okay i don't expect everybody to get everything but if you count those windows you're gonna win a prize that's how it goes yeah window counting okay so i think i'm up uh this next section sorry for the construction noise people mm. next section is called critique of naive functionalism we have indicated the principal questions that arise in relation to an urban artifact. Among them, individually, locus, memory, design itself. Function was not mentioned. I believe that any explanation of urban artifacts in terms of function must be rejected if the issue is to elucidate their structure and formation. We will later give some examples of important urban artifacts whose function has changed over time or for which a specific function does not even exist. Thus, one thesis of our study in its effort to affirm the value of architecture in the analysis of the city is the denial of the explanation of urban artifacts in terms of function. I maintain, on the contrary, that far from being illuminating, this explanation is regressive because it impedes us from studying forms and knowing the world of architecture according to its true laws. We hasten to say that this does not entail the rejection of the concept of function in its most proper sense. However, that is, as an algebra of values that can be known as functions of one another. Nor does it deny that between functions and form one may seek to establish more complex ties than the linear ones of cause and effect, which are belayed to by reality itself. Question mark? Uh, more specifically, we reject that conception of functionalism dictated by an ingenious empiricism which holds that functions bring form together and that in themselves constitute urban artifacts and architecture. So conceived, function, physiological in nature, can be likened to a bodily organ whose function justifies its formation and development and whose alterations of function imply an alteration of form. In this light, functionalism and organicism, the two principal currents which have pervaded modern architecture, reveal their common roots and the reason for their weakness and fundamental ambiguity. Through them, form is divested of its most complex derivations. Type is reduced to a simple scheme of organization, a diagram of circulation routes, and architecture is seen as possessing no autonomous value. Thus, the excuse, excuse that car. <laughs> Thus, the aesthetic intentionality and necessity that characterize urban artifacts and establish their complex ties cannot be further analyzed. Although the doctrine of functionalism has earlier or origins, it was enunciated and applied clearly by Bronislaw Malinowski, who refers explicitly to that which is man-made, to the object, the house. Take the human habitation. Here again, the integral function of the object must be taken into account when the various phases of its technological construction and the elements of its structure are studied. From a beginning of this sort, one quickly descends to consideration solely of the purposes which man-made items, 
the object in the house serve? The question, for what purpose, ends up as a simple justification that prevents an analysis of what is, what is real. This concept of function comes to be assumed as a given in all architectural and urbanistic thinking and, particularly in the field of geography, leads to a functionalist and organist... Organicist? 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 Oh, yeah. Organicist, yeah. I think it's the word organic. Yeah. Yes. Not, like, I was like, organicist. But. Organicist, yeah, I think it's organicist. Characterization of a large part of modern architecture. In studies of the classification of cities, it overwhelms and takes priority over the urban landscape and form. And although many writers express doubts as to the validity and exactitude of this type of classification, they argue that there is no other viable classification to offer as an alternative. I love that. Like, there's no better option, so let's go with this one. Thus, George's... Thus, George's Chabot... Chabot! <laughs> after declaring the impossibility of giving the city a precise definition, because there's always a residue that is impossible to describe in a precise way, then turns to function, even if he immediately admits its inadequacy. In such formulation, the city as an agglomeration is explained precisely on the basis of what functions its citizens seek to exercise. The function of a city becomes its raison d'etre, and, and in this form reveals itself. In many cases, the study of morphology is, resumed, is reduced to a simple study of function. Once the concept of function is established, in fact, one immediately arrives at obvious classifications, commercial cities, cultural cities, industrial cities, military cities, etc. Moreover, even in the context of a somewhat general critique of the concept of function, it must be pointed out that there is already within this system of assigning functions a difficulty in establishing the role of, commercial, of the commercial function. In fact, as proposed, the concept of classification according to function is far too superficial. It assumes an identical value for all types of functions, which simply is not the case. Actually, the fact that the commercial function is predominant is increasingly evident. This commercial function is the, basic, is the basis in terms of production of an economic explanation of the city that, beginning with the classical formulation offered by Max Weber, has undergone a specific development, one to which we shall have to return to later. Given a function-based clarification of the city, it is only oh classification of the city. It is only logical that the commercial functions in both the city's formation and its development presents itself as the most conceiving, most convincing explanation for the multiplicity of urban artifacts and is tied to economic theories of the city. Once we attribute different values to different functions, we deny the validity of naive functionalism. In fact, using the line, this line of reasoning, we see that naive functionalism ends up contradicting its own initial hypotheses. Furthermore, if urban artifacts were constantly able to reform and renew themselves simply by establishing new functions, the values of the urban structure, as revealed through its architecture, would be continuous and easily available. The permanence of buildings and forms would have no significance, and the very idea of the transmission of a culture of which the city is an element would be questionable. None of this corresponds to reality. Oof. Naive functionalist theory is quite convenient for elementary classifications, however, and it is difficult to see what can substitute for, 
what to see what can substitute for it at this level. It serves, that is, to maintain a certain order and to provide us with a simple instrumental fact, just so long as it does not pretend that an explanation for more complex facts can be extracted from the same order. On the other hand, the definition of type that we have tried to propose for urban artifacts and architecture, a definition which was first enunciated in the Enlightenment, allows us to proceed to an accurate classification of urban artifacts and ultimately also to a classification based on function wherever the latter constitutes an aspect of the general definition. If, alternatively, we begin with a classification based on function, type would have to be treated in a very different way indeed if we are to insist on the primacy of function we must then understand type as the organizing model of this function. But this understanding of type and consequently urban artifacts and architecture as the organizing principle of certain functions almost totally denies us an adequate knowledge of reality. Even if a classification of building and cities according to their function is permissible as a generalization of certain kinds of data, it is inconceivable to reduce the structure of urban artifacts to a problem of organizing some more or less important function. Precisely, the serious distortion has impeded and in large measure continues to impede any real progress in studies of the city. Is that the end? Is that? Is that the end? No. It keeps going. Oh no, it keeps going. How do I get there? Oh, we're already there. <laughs> Just go. No, 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 no. That's that? we read that page yeah, already. Yeah. You have to go down. Oh, I went the wrong way. <laughs> this document works kind of funny. You have to click oh. on it. Oh. <laughs> or maybe go this way. Oh. Oh, there we go. Just having some uh, side thoughts here. Probably yeah. not. Oh, there we probably go. Not ready, but okay. So, just a little break ski thoughts. So. It's kind of long. Uh, have you ever had? Uh, you ever had like a bird poop on you before? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bird just yeah. yeah. So a bird just flew over. So it's what we think of it. I have. I was yeah. downtown. Uh-oh. And I was just trying to think, it's like, what kind of bird was it? You know? And I always, oh, I always assume yeah. it was like a crow, but then I think, no, maybe it was like more of a seagull. And like, is that worse? I think a... Uh, Am I being birdist right I now? think like a little cute bird would be better than like yeah. some big nasty garbage-y. bottom feeder. Yeah. yeah. Like a pigeon. Like a rat of the yeah. sky. I'm pretty sure it's a seagull, but luckily I was at the beach, so I just mm-hmm. went straight into the water. Oh, yeah. oh nice. washed off. Mm-hmm. Nice. I was like driving my car in traffic with the sunroof open. <laughs> oh, a bird pooped on you? That's rough. Yeah. You pooped in my hair once. Yeah. Oh. I just kept going. <laughs> I like wiped it out. You, I had a friend and a bird pooped in her hair once and she freaked out and she was crying and mm. I helped her. We were like in grade seven. And then it happened to me like a few years ago. So you had to really fight against that. And I was previously. like traveling in Europe yeah. and I was like, oh, say Life me. goes on. Just nice. dipped my head in a fountain. <laughs> Not even joking. Perfect. Okay. Four, if urban artifacts present nothing but a problem of organization and classification, then they have neither continuity nor individuality. Monuments and architecture have no reason to exist. They do not say anything to us. Such positions clearly take on an ideological character when they pretend to objectify and quantify urban artifacts. Utilitarian in nature, these views are adopted as if they were products for consumption. Later, we will see the more specifically architectural implications of this notion. To conclude, we are willing to accept functional classification as a practical and contingent criterion, the equivalent of a number of other criteria. For example, social makeup, constructional system, development of the area, and so on. 
Since such classifications have a certain utility, nonetheless, it is clear that they are more useful for telling us something about the point of view adopted for classification than about an element itself. With these provisions in mind, they can be accepted. Problems of classification. Chun, chun, chun. <laughs> in my summary of functionalist theory, I have deliberately emphasized those aspects that have made it so predominant and widely accepted. This is in part because functionalism has had great success in the world of architecture, and those who have been educated in this discipline over the past 50 years can detach themselves from it uh, only with difficulty. One ought to inquire into how it has actually determined modern architecture and still inhibits its progressive evolution today, but this is not an issue I wish to pursue here. Instead, I wish to concentrate on the importance of other interpretations within the domain of architecture and the city, which constitute the foundations of the thesis that I am advancing. Still hasn't started. No, yes. No. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. These include the social geography of Jean Tricart, the theory of persistence of Marcel Poet, Poet, and the Enlightenment theory, particularly that of Militia. Militia. All of these interest me primarily because they are based on a continuous reading of the city and its architecture and have implications for a general theory of urban artifacts. For tree art, the social content of the city is the basis for reading it. The study of social content must precede the description of the geographical artifacts that ultimately give the urban landscape its meaning. Social facts, to the extent that they, they present themselves as a specific content, precede forms and function and, one might say, embrace them. The task of human geography is to study the structures of the city in connection with its form of place where they appear. This necessitates a sociological study of place, but before proceeding to an analysis of place, it's necessary to establish a, a priori the limits within which place can be defined. Treyart? Is that what we're saying here? Treyart? 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 I can tell if it's an E or a C. Thus establishes three different orders or scales. So a priori is before knowing something, right? Like your knowledge of something before you actually actually so. learn it? Yeah. Like before that makes yeah. Sense. yeah. Prior to. Or there's priori and a priori. So I don't uh, know if priori is prior to, maybe a priori is after. A, a is like priori. an after thing. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's after experience. Anyways. We'll know more. Let's establish three different orders or scales. Number one, the scale of the street, including the built areas and empty spaces that surround it. Number two, the scale of the district, consisting of a group of blocks with common characteristics. And number three, the scale of the entire city, considered as a group of districts. The principle that renders these quantities homogeneous and relates them is social content. On the basis of Treekart's thesis, I will develop one particular type of urban analysis, which is consistent with his premises and takes a topographical point of view that seems quite important to me. But before doing so, I wish to register a fundamental objection to the scale of his study, or the three parts into which he divides the city. Did I just skip a bit? No, I didn't. No, that, that urban artifacts should be studied solely in terms of place, we can certainly admit. But when we cannot agree with it, wait, but what we cannot agree with is that places can somehow be explained on the basis of different scales. 
Moreover, if we admit that the notion is useful, either didactically or for practical research, it implies something unacceptable. This has to do with the quality of urban artifacts. Therefore, while we do not wholly deny that there are different scales of study, we believe that it is inconceivable to think that urban artifacts change in some way as a result of their size. The contrary thesis implies accepting, as many do, the principle that the city is modified as it extends or that urban artifacts in themselves are different because of the size at which they are produced. As was stated by Richard Radcliffe, to consider the problems of locational maldistribution only in the metropolitan context is to encourage the population but false assumption that these are the problems of size. We shall see that the problems to be viewed crop up in varying degrees of intensity in villages, towns, cities, and metropolises. For the dynamic forces of urbanism are vital wherever men and things are found compacted, and the urban organism is subject to the same natural and social laws regardless of size. To ascribe the problems of the city to size is to imply that solutions lie in reversing the growth process, that is, in deep concentration. Both the assumption and the implication are questionable. At the scale of the street, one of the fundamental elements in the urban landscape is the inhabited real estate and thus the structure of urban real property. I speak of inhabited real estate and not the house because the definition is far more precise in the various European languages. Real estate has a lot to do with the deed registry of land parcels in which the principal use of the ground, for, principal use of the ground is for construction. The usage of inhabited land is large measure, in large measure tends to be residential but one could also speak of specialized real estate and mixed real estate, although this classification, while useful, is not sufficient. To classify this land, we can begin with some considerations that are apparent from plans. Thus, we have the following. 1. A block of houses surrounded by open space. 2. A block of houses connected to each other and facing the street, constituting a continuous wall parallel to the street itself. 3. A block of houses that almost totally occupies the available space and four, houses with closed courts and small interior structures. A classification of this type can be considered descriptive, geometric, or topographic. We can carry it further and accumulate other classificato classificatory Whoa. data relative to technical equipment, stylistic phenomena, the relationship between green and occupied spaces, etc. The questions this information gives rise to can lead us back to the principal issues which are, roughly speaking, those that deal with 1. Objective facts 2. The influence of the real estate structure and economic data 3. Historical influences The real estate structure and economic questions are of particular importance and are intimately bound up with what we call historical social influences. In order to demonstrate the advantages of an analysis of this type, in the second chapter of this book, we will examine the problems of housing and the residential district. For now, we will continue with the subject of real estate structure and economic data, even if the second is given summary treatment. The shape of the plots of land in a city, their formation and their evolution, represents a long history of urban property and the classes intimately associated with the city. Tricard has stated very clearly that an analysis of the contrast in the form of plots confirms the existence of a class struggle. 
modifications of the real estate structure, which we can now follow with absolute precision through historical registry maps, indicate the emergence of an urban bourgeoisie and the phenomenon of the progressive concentration of capital. A criterion of this type applied to a city with as extraordinary a life cycle as ancient Rome offers information of a paradigmatic clarity. It allows us to trace the evolution from the agricultural city to the formation of the great public spaces of the imperial age and the subsequent transitions from the courtyard houses of the Republic to the formation of the great plebeian insulae. The enormous lots that constitute the insulae an extraordinary conception of the house district anticipate the concepts of the modern capitalist city and its spatial division. Division. They also help us to explain its dysfunction and contradictions. Real estate, which we considered earlier from a topographic point of view, also offers other possibilities of classification when seen in a socioeconomic context. We can distinguish the following. One, the pre-capitalist house, which is established by a proprietor without exploitative ends. Two, capitalist house, which is meant for rental and in, in which everything is subordinated to the, productive, to the production of rent, revenue. Initially, it might be intended either for the rich or for the poor, but in the first case, following the usual evolution of needs, the house drops rapidly in class status in response to social changes. These changes in status create blighted zones, one of the most typical problems of the modern capitalist city, and as such, the object of particular study in the United States, where they are more evident than in Italy. Three, the paracapitalist house, built for one family with one floor rented out. Four, the socialist house, which is a new type of construction appearing in socialist countries where there is no longer private land ownership and also in advanced democratic countries. Among the earliest European examples are the houses constructed by the city of Vienna after the First World War, which we studied. Red mm-hmm. Vienna. Yes. Love those guys. <laughs> Where they focused, like the ergonomic studies and things like that were pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With this analysis of social context, uh, or of social content is applied with particular attention to urban topography, it becomes capable of providing us with a fairly complete knowledge of the city. Such analysis proceeds by means of successive synthesis, syntheses, causing certain elementary facts to come to light which ultimately encompass more general facts. In addition, through the analysis of social content, the formal aspect of urban artifacts takes on a reasonable, reasonably convincing interpretation and a number of themes emerge that play an important role in the urban structure. From the, from the scientific point of view, the work of Marcel Poete is without doubt one of the most modern studies of the city. I don't know how to say his name. Is Poet? Poet, yeah. yeah. Poet concerns himself with urban artifacts to the extent that they are indicative of the conditions of the urban organism. They provide precise information which is verifiable in the in the existing city. Their raison d'etre is their continuity while geographic, economic, and statistical information must also be taken into consideration along with historical facts. It is knowledge of the past that constitutes the terms of the present and the measure of the future. Such knowledge can be derived from a study of city plans. These possess precise formal characteristics. For example, the form of a city's streets can be straight, sinuous, or curved. But the general form of the city also has meaning of its own. 
and its needs naturally tend to be expressed in its built works, which beyond certain obvious differences present undeniable similarities. Thus in urban architecture, a more or less clearly articulated bond is established between the shapes of things throughout history. Against a background of the differences between historical periods and civilizations, it therefore becomes possible to verify a certain constancy of themes, and this constancy assures a relative unity to the urban expression. From this, from this develop the from this develop the relationships between the city and the geographic region, which can be analyzed effectively in terms of the role of the street. Thus, in Poet's analysis, the street acquires major significance. The city is born in a fixed place, but the street gives it life. The association of the destiny of the city with communication arteries becomes a fundamental principle of development. In the study of the relationship between the street and the city, Poet arrives at important conclusions. For any given city, it should be possible to establish the classification of streets, which should then be reflected in the map of the geographic area. Streets, whether cultural or commercial, should also be able to be characterized according to the nature of the changes that are affected because of them. Thus, Poet repeats the Greek geographer Strabo, Strabo's observation about the shadow cities along the Flemian Way, whose development is explained as occurring more because they're found situated along that road than for any inherent importance. From the street, Poet and and Poet's analysis passes to the urban land, which contains natural artifacts as well as civic ones, and becomes associated with the composition of the city. In the urban composition, everything must express as faithfully as possible the particular life of the collective organism. At the basis of this organism, that is, the city is the persistence of the plan. That's emphasized, that persistence of the plan. Mm. It's not just said, it's said. This concept of persistence (laughs) is fundamental to the theory of Poet. It also informs the analysis of Pierre Lavadon, one of the most complete analyses available to us, with its interposing of elements drawn from geography and the history of architecture. In Lavadon, persistence is the generator of the plan and this generator becomes the principal object of urban research because through an understanding of it, one can rediscover the spatial formality, spatial formation of the city. The generator embodies a concept of persistence which is reflected in a city's physical structures, streets, and urban monuments. The contributions of Poet and Lavadin together with those of the geographers Chabot and Tricard are among the most significant offerings of the French school to urban theory. The contribution of enlightenment, thought to be comprehensive theory of urban artifacts, would merit a separate study. One objective of the treaties, 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 writers of the 18th century was to establish principles of architecture that could be developed from logical basis. In a certain sense, independently of design, Thus, the treatise. Treaties, do we say? Treatise. Treatise? Maybe? What does this mean? Is this multiple treaties? It's like a dissertation, kind of? Like, it's like you write um, up something? Vitruvius' treatise Mm -hmm. on architecture, whatever it was. Oh, okay. It's like a little little, discussion or manifesto. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.
uh, <laughs> took shape. I'm not going to say the word again, though, because I forget again. Treatise. Um, treatise. Took shape as a series of propositions derived serially from one another. Second, they conceived that a single element always is a part of a system, the system of the city, and therefore it was the city that conferred criteria of necessity and reality on single buildings. Third, they distinguished form as the final manifestation of structure from the analytical aspect of structure, thus form had a classical persistence of its own which could not be reduced to the logic of the moment. I wish they would explain why they had the photos alongside. Like if they could be like, yeah, yeah. this photo because. I mean, here's the Karl Markshoff, which is they're referring to. This is so you can double check your window counts. I think they put this in there <laughs> just for context. Just in case. Yeah. yeah. I uh, guess this is like a new housing typology. Right. Right. Yep. Now, but yeah, they could have said that in their caption. Yeah. Kind of get close. We could do a count the bricks contest. <laughs> Let's <laughs> oh <my> not. God. <laughs> I think we probably have enough um, enough things to enough. win the prize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, if somebody even gets two of those things, I'll be impressed. Yes, be absolutely. Impressed Good job. It's Good just, job are they listening? That's yeah. the question. Are you, you actually know? listening? Yeah. <laughs> or are you listening? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> One could discuss the second argument at length, but more substantial knowledge would certainly be necessary. Clearly, while this argument applies to the existing city, it also postulates the future city and the inseparable relationship between the constitution of an artifact and its surroundings. Yet Voltaire had already indicated in his analysis of the Grand Cycle. The Grand Cycle? See, I, I haven't studied French. The Grand. So. What is like Cycle? Isn't that century? I thought Cycle was century, but Maybe. I think I'm wrong. Or is Cycle sky? I'm getting rusty. Anyway. Stavros? <laughs> and it's like 100% not an icicle. Tell us. <laughs> it's not an icicle. Not, yeah, it this sounds like it. No, Cielo is sky. I don't know. Oh, so, yeah. Anyway. The limits of such architectures. How uninteresting a city would be if the task of every constructed work was to establish a direct relationship with the city itself. The manifestation of these concepts is found in the Napoleonic plans and projects, which represent one of the moments of major equilibrium in urban history. I wonder what they mean by that. Like, and mm. just the city was really well planned. I guess so. I mean, that's I when so. I think I'm about really Napoleonic like, plans. It's kind of like this whole right. idea of like slide, like doing things yeah. in a structured way, like top down kind of thing. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, for sure. Grand Siakla. <laughs> Do a little check there. So, on the basis of these three arguments developed in the Enlightenment, we can examine the theory of militia. The classification proposed by Militia, an architectural essayist concerned with theories of urban artifacts, deals with both individual buildings and the city as a whole. He classified urban buildings as either public or private, sorry, private or public, the former meaning housing and the latter referring to certain principal elements, which I will call primary. In addition, he presents these groupings as classes, which permits him to make distinctions within classes distinguishing each principal element as a building type within a general function, or better, a general idea of the city. For example, villas and houses are in the first class, while in the second are police buildings, public utilities, storage facilities, etc. Buildings for public use are further distinguished as universities, libraries, and so on. Nice. So, did we get an answer I on did, this? I did, yeah. Grand you were right. 
It's the reign of Louis XIV, seen as France's period of political and cultural preeminence. So right. it was the so era the great, the great century. Mm-hmm. Mm. The good old days. <laughs> yes. Melita's analysis yeah, great century. <laughs> uh, refers in the first place, then, to classes public and private, and in the second, to the location of elements in the city, and in the third, to the form and organization of individual buildings. Quote, greater public convenience demands that these buildings public use be situated near the center of the city and organized around large, a large community square. The general system is the city. The development of its elements is then bound up with the development of the system adopted. What kind of city does Malizia have in mind? It is a city that is conceived together with its architecture. Quote, even without extravagant buildings, cities can appear beautiful and breathe desire. But to speak of a beautiful city is also to speak of good architecture. End quote. This assertion seems definitive for all Enlightenment treatises on architecture. A beautiful city means good architecture, and vice versa. It is unlikely that Enlightenment thinkers paused over this statement. So ingrained was it in their way of thinking. We know that their lack of understanding of the Gothic city was a result of their inability to accept the validity of single elements that contributed an urban landscape without seeing these elements in relation to some larger system. If in their failure to understand the meaning and thus the beauty of the Gothic city, they were short-sighted, this of course does not make their, their own system incorrect. However, to us today, the beauty of the Gothic city appears precisely in that it was, it is an extraordinary urban artifact whose uniqueness is clearly recognizable in its components. Through our investigation of the parts of this city, we grasp its beauty. It too participates in a system. There is nothing more false than an organic or spontaneous definition of the Gothic city. There is yet another aspect of modernity in Malizia's position. After establishing his concept of classes, he goes on to classify each building type within the overall framework into characteristics and characterize it according to its function. This notion of function, which is treated independently of general considerations of form, is understood more as the building's purpose than as its function per se. Thus, buildings for practical uses and those that are constructed for functions that are not equally tangible or pragmatic are put into the same class. For example, buildings for public health or safety are found in the same class as structures built for their magnificence or grandeur. Oh, interesting. There are at least three arguments in favor of this position. Most important is the recognition of the city as a complex structure in which parts can be found that function as works of art. The second has to do with the value ascribed to a general typological discourse or on urban artifacts, or in other words, the realization that one can give a technical explanation for those aspects of the city that by nature demand a more complex explanation by reducing them to the typological essence. The third argument relates to the fact that this typological essence plays its own role in the constitution of the model. For example, in analyzing the monument, Militia arrives at three criteria. Quote, that it is direct toward the public good, that it is appropriately located, and that it is constituted according to laws of fitness. With respect to the customs governing the construction of monuments, no more can be said here generally than that they should be meaningful and expressive of a simple structure and with a clear and short inscription so that the briefest glance reveals the effect for which they were constructed, end quote. 
In other words, insofar as the nature of the monument is concerned, even if we cannot offer more than a tautology, a monument is a monument. We can still establish conditions around it which illustrate its typological and compositional characteristics, whether these precisely elucidate its nature or not. Again, these characteristics are for the most part of an urban nature, but they are equally conditions of architecture, that is, of composition. really like the phrase, they're laws of fitness. That yes. seemed to me like a uh, something you'd yell out if you're in an infomercial audience. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, where everything's got to be what? Publicly good, properly located, and follow the laws of fitness. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of Darwinian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah like, actually, it's kind of nice. Um, got some random surrounds here. Well. <laughs> some grass, yeah. flying petals, bugs. Of stuff. It's great. Um, okay, so this is the basic issue to which we all return to later. Namely, the way that in which principles and classifications in the Enlightenment conception were a general aspect of architecture, but that in its realization and evaluation, architecture involved primarily the individual work and the individual architect. Melitzi himself scorned the builders who mixed architectural and social orders, as well as the proponents of objective models of functional organizations, such as were later produced by Romanticism, asserting that quote, to derive functional organizations from beehives is to go insect hunting. Very interesting. <laughs> Here again, we find within a single formulation the two themes which were to be fundamental in the subsequent development of architectural thought, and which already indicated in their dual aspects of organi- organi- organicism. organicism. It's like yeah. it, it wants to... Yeah. C wants to be silent there. Yeah. <laughs> But I just Organism. love throwing a C out there. Um, <laughs> and functionalism, <laughs> functionalism, their anticipation of the romantic sensibilities and abstract order of organization and the reference to nature. The re- with respect to function itself, Melitzia writes, quote, Because of its enormous variety, functional organization cannot always be regulated by fixed and constant laws, and as a result must always resist generalization. For the most part, the most renowned architects, when they wished to concern themselves with functional organization, mainly produced drawings and descriptions of their buildings rather than the rules that could then be learned." This passage clearly shows how function is understood here as a relationship and not a scheme of organization. In fact, as as such, it is rejected. But this attitude did not preclude a contemporaneous Yes. Is it contemporary? I think so. Contemporaneous search for rules that might transmit principles of architecture. A new section, the complexity of urban facts. This is this is quite the marathon this week. Yeah, this is a long <laughs> one. I gotta say, yeah, we're rocking it. Thanks for being here. Uh, just a couple more. We're an hour and twenty minutes in on oh the podcast. Oh my god! Can we even post that at this point? I think so. Uh, I upload hope so. that size. How many more? The question Whew. is: Is my battery gonna last that long? Holy moly. We might have to get cozy all around one computer for the last bit. Is yours running low? Yeah, I think we're... I'm doing okay over here. I think you're okay. Totally missed the other 2.30 thing I had. It goes... Oh, no. (laughs) That's okay. So, the complexity of urban artifacts. I'm now going to consider some of the questions underlying the various theories just outlined, emphasizing certain points which are crucial for the present study. The first theory referred to was drawn from the French School of Geographers. I noted that although it provided a good descriptive system, 
it stops short of an analysis of the structure of the city. In particular, I mentioned the work of Chabot, for whom the city is a totality that constructs itself, in which all the elements participate in forming the âme de la cité. How is this latter perception to be reconciled with Chabot's study of function? The answer, already implicit in some of what has been said so far, is partially suggested in Sora's critique of Chabot's book. Sora wrote that for Chabot, in essence, la vie seule explique la vie, which means, this means that if the city explains itself, then a classification by functions is not an explanation, but rather a descriptive system. So la vie seule explique la vie is only life explains life. Oh. Ooh. The French, they just know how to say yes. things. Yes, so poetic. <laughs> this can be rephrased in the following manner. A description of function is easy to verify. Like any study of urban morphology, it is an instrument. Furthermore, since it does not posit any element of continuity between the genre de vie, or, I don't know, genre of life, <laughs> and the urban structure, as the naive functionalists would like, it seems to be as useful an element of analysis as any other. We will retain from Chabot's studies his concept of the city as a totality and his ap- approach to understanding of this totality through the study of its various manifestations, its behavior. In presenting the work of Tricard, I tried to indicate the importance of a study of the city that takes social content as its point of departure. I believe that the study of social content has the capacity to illuminate the meaning of urban evolution in a concrete way. I especially emphasize the aspects of this research that relate to the urban topography and therefore the formation of boundaries and the value of urban land as basic elements of the city. Later, we will look at these aspects from the standpoint of economic theory. With respect to Lavadon's work, we can pose the following question. If the structure Lavadon proposes is a real structure, formed of streets, monuments and the like, how does it relate to the present study? Structure, as Lavadon understands it, means the structure of urban artifacts, and in this way it resembles Poet's conception, or sorry, concept, of the persistence of the plan and the plan as generator. As this generator is by nature both real and abstract, it cannot be catalogued like a function. Moreover, since every function can be articulated through a form, and forms in turn contain the potential to exist as urban artifacts, one can say that form, forms tend to allow themselves to be articulated as urban elements. Thus, if a form is articulated at all, one can assume that a, that a specific urban artifact persists together with it, and that is precisely a form that persists through a set of transformations, which constitutes an urban artifact par excellence. I have already made a critique of naive functionalist classifications. I repeat, at times they are acceptable, so long as they remain within the handbooks of architecture to which they are appropriate. Such classifications presuppose that all urban artifacts are created to serve particular functions in a static way, and that their structure precisely coincides with the function they perform at a certain moment. I maintain, on the contrary, that if that the city is something that persists through its, trans- through its transformations and that the complex or simple transformations of functions that it gradually undergoes are moments in the reality of its structure. 
function here is meant only in the sense of complex relationships between many orders of facts. I reject linear interpretations of cause and effect because they are belied by reality itself. This interpretation certainly differs from that of use or of functional organization. Some of this reading, I've got to say, seems like it's trying to hit a word count here. You know? <laughs> it's like, this like, is what I told you, and this is what I'm going to tell you later, and then there's the function of functionality and the precision of precision. And, and then two hours later, ha, that's what I told you in the first line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all there. Oh. All right. Powering through. Um, I also wish to emphasize my reservations about a certain language and reading of the city and urban artifacts which present a serious obstacle to urban research. In many ways, this language is linked to the naive functionalism on the one hand and a form of architectural romanticism on the other. I refer to the two terms, organic and rational, which have been borrowed by the architectural language in which, although they possess an indubitable history, validity for making distinctions between one style or type of architecture and another certainly do not help us clarify concepts or somehow to comprehend urban artifacts. The term organic is derived from biology. <clears throat> I've elsewhere noted that the basis of Frederick Ratzel's functionalism was a hypothesis that likened the city to an organism, the form of which was constituted by functioning itself. This physiological hypothesis is as brilliant as, as it is inapplicable to the structure of urban artifacts and to the architectural design, although the application to the problems of design is a subject in itself and requires a separate treatment. Among the most prominent terms of this organic language are organism, organic growth, urban fabric. Similarly, in some of the more serious ecological studies, Parallels between the city and the human organism and the processes of the biological world have been suggested, although quickly abandoned. The terminology, in fact, is so pervasive among those in the field that at first sight it seems intimately tied to the material under consideration, and only with some difficulty is it possible to avoid the use of a term like architectural organism and substitute it for a more appropriate word like building. The same can be said for fabric. It even seems that some of the authors divine modern architecture toot court as organic, and by the virtue of its powerful appeal to this, uh, this terminology has passed rapidly from serious studies to the profession and to journalism. The terminology of the so-called rationalist variety is no less imprecise. To speak of rational urbanism is simply a tautology. <laughs> Do you guys know what tautology is? Tout. A, I like to tout things. I don't know. Yeah. A study of tout. Sorry, not a lot of help there. <laughs> I yeah, don't know. sorry. It's the a second study time of tout. <laughs> What's tautology. I'm guessing it's. I'm guessing it's like. Um, no, I'm not gonna even try to say it. You look that up. I'll the saying of the same oh. thing twice in different words. I was gonna say like. Like words. this whole article. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Generally considered to be a fault of style. Okay, interesting. Phrase or expression in which the same thing is said twice in different words. Hmm. Okay, so to speak of tautology, oh wait, to speak of rational urbanism is simply a tautology, since the rationalization of spatial choices is by definition a condition of urbanism. Rationalist definitions have the undoubted merit, however, of always referring to urbanism as a discipline, precisely superior usefulness. 
uh, oh sorry <laughs> as a discipline mm -hmm. precisely because of its character of rationality and thus offer a terminology of clearly superior usefulness to say that the medieval city is organic reveals an absolute ignorance of the political religious and economic structures of the medieval city not to mention its spatial structure to say on the other hand that the plan of Miletus is rational is true even if it have even if it has been so general as to be generic and fails to offer us any real idea of Miletus's layout beyond the ambiguity of confounding rationality with what is a simple geometric scheme. Both these aspects are aptly characterized in Miletus's comments cited earlier about functional organization in beehives. Thus, even though this terminology undoubtedly possesses a certain poetic expressiveness, and as such might be of interest to us, it has nothing to do with the theory of urban artifacts. I'm sorry, I didn't even realize we we're still talking about I know. urban artifacts. <laughs> uh, it is really a vehicle of confusion, and it would be useful to drop it all together. Hmm. Urban artifacts, as we have said, are complex, and this means that they have components, and that each component has a different value. Thus, in speaking of the typological essence in architecture, we said that it has it quote, has its own role to play in the model, end quote. In other words, the typological essence is a component element. However, before attempting a typological reading of the city based on a theory of urban artifacts and their structures, it is necessary to proceed slowly to some precise definitions. Exactly how are urban artifacts complex? The partial answer has already been given with respect to the theories of Chabot and Poet. One can agree that their statements relative to the soul of the city and the concept of permanence go beyond naive functionalism and approach an understanding of the quality of urban artifacts. On the other hand, little attention has really been given to this problem of quality, a problem which surfaces mainly in historical research. Although there is already some progress in the recognition that the nature of urban artifacts is in many ways like that of a work of art, should I wait for it to pass? Yeah. Where's that chopper's going? Oh, it's a uh, lifeline. What's that? It's going to the hospital. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so it's like a sad helicopter. It's a sad helicopter. In a graveyard. Generally, I find helicopters very happy, you know? <laughs> I always thought I wanted Ferrari money, but now I know I want that chopper money, you know? Chopper money? Yeah. Just drop down wherever you want. I feel like after last summer I associate helicopters with forest fires because there's a constant flow of helicopters oh. with water buckets right. surrounding Nelson. There right. have been two moments in my life where I've been woken up in the middle of the night by like helicopters overhead and sirens mm. and like, this is spooky. Yeah. So I don't know, I associate them with like crime now. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to wrap up here? Do you have to go? We're almost there. We're okay, almost we're almost there. there. Okay. Almost there. Okay, right. We have to okay. push through. Okay. All right. <laughs> Um, on the other hand, little attention has really been given to this problem of quality, a problem which surfaces mainly in its historical research. Although there is already some progress in the recognition that the nature of urban artifacts is in many ways like that of a work of art, and most important, that a key element for understanding urban artifacts is their collective character. On the basis of these considerations, it is possible to delineate a type of reading for urban structures. But we must begin by posing two general sets of questions. First, from what points of view it is possible to read a city? How many ways are there to understanding its structure? It is possible to say, and what it does mean, that a reading is interdisciplinary. 
Do some disciplines take precedence over others? Obviously, these questions are closely linked. Second, what are the possibilities for autonomous urban science? Of the two questions, the second is clearly decisive. In fact, if there is an urban science, the first group of questions ends up having little meaning. That which today is often defined as interdisciplinary is nothing other than that a problem of specialization and occurs in any field of knowledge. But the response to the second question depends on the recognition that the city is constructed in its totality, that all of its components participate in the constitution as an artifact. In other words, on the most general level, it must be understood that the city represents City represents the progress of human reason as a human creation par excellence and that this statement has meaning only to the fundamental point is emphasized that the city yeah it's weird I'm getting a crazy reflection here maybe I gotta get back in here get a low down um, okay sorry guys uh, the response to this second question depends on a recognition that the city is constructed in its totality that all of its components participate in its constitution as an artifact. In other words, on the most general level, it must be understood that the city represents the progress of human reason, is human creation par excellence, and that this statement has meaning only when the fundamental point is emphasized that the city and every urban artifact are by their nature collective. I'm often asked why only historians give us a complete picture of the city. I believe the answer is that historians are concerned with the urban artifact in its totality. New section, Monuments and the Theory of Permanences. Clearly, to think of urban science as a historical science is a mistake, for in this case we would be obliged to speak only of urban history. What I mean to suggest, however, is that from the point of view of urban structure, urban history seems more useful than any other form of research on the city. Later, I will address the contribution of history to urban science in a more detailed way, but since this problem is particularly important, it would be useful to make a few specific observations right away. These concern the theory of permanences, as posited by both Poet and Lavadon. These theories, this theory is in some respects related to my initial hypothesis of the city as a man-made object. One, one must remember that the difference between past and future, from the point of view of the theory of knowledge, in large measure reflects the, the fact that the past is partly being experienced now, and this may be the meaning to give permanences. They are a past that we are still experiencing. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, it's like the idea of, uh, and no one will even listen to this because this podcast is too long, but uh, the idea of deja vu. It's like your brain, you're accessing the, you're like seeing what's happening right now with the memory part of your brain instead of the right now part of your brain. Mm. So it feels like a memory. But is really that what Deja Vu's about? I think that's what it's about. <laughs> you just um, made that up. No, I've, I like, definitely heard that sense. before. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like you're remembering the moment at that moment. Yeah. Well, Poet's theory is not very explicit on this point, but I'll try to summarize it briefly. Although he presents a number, yeah. Will you though? I will, well, and then I'll brief. tell you that I did it. <laughs> Although he presents a number of hypotheses, uh, among which are economic considerations that relate to the evolution of the city, it is in substance econo- or substance. It is in substance a historical theory censored on the phenomenon of persistencies. These persistencies are revealed through monuments the physical signs of the past, as well as through the pers- 
existence of the city's basic layout and plans. This last point is Poet's most important discovery. Cities tend to remain on their axis of development, maintaining the position of the original layout and growing accordingly to the direction and meaning of their older artifacts, which often appear remote from present day ones. Sometimes these artifacts persist virtually unchanged, endowed with continuous vitality. Other times they exhaust themselves and then only the permanence of their form, their physical sign, their locus remains. The most meaningful permanences are those provided by the street and the plan. The plan persists at different levels. It becomes differentiated in its attributes, often deformed, but in its substance, it is not displaced. This is the most valid part of Poet's theory. Even if it cannot be said to be completely historical theory, it is essentially born from the study of history. At first sight, it may seem that permanences absorb all of the continuity of urban artifacts. But in reality, this is not so. Because not all things in the city survive, or if they do, their modalities are so diverse as often to resist comparison. In this sense, according to the theory of permanences, in order to explain an urban artifact, one is forced to look beyond it to the present-day actions that modify it. In substance, the historical method is one that isolates. It tends not only to differentiate permanences, but to focus entirely on them, since they alone can show what a city once, what a city, what a city once was by indicating the way that its past differs from its present. Thus, permanences may appear with respect to the city as isolated and aberrant artifacts, which characterize a system only as the form of a past that we are still experiencing. In this respect, permanences present two aspects. On the one hand, they can be considered as propelling elements, on the other, as pathological elements. Artifacts are either, artifacts either enable us to understand the city in its totality, or they appear as a series of isolated elements that we can link only tenuously to an urban system. To illustrate the distinction between permanent elements that are vital and those that are pathological, we can again take Palazzo della Ragione in Padua as an example. I remarked on its permanent character before, but now by permanence I mean not only that one can still experience the form of the past in this monument, but that the physical form of the past has assumed different functions and has continued to function, conditioning the urban area in which it stands and continuing to constitute an important, an important urban focus. In part, this building is still in use. Even if everyone is convinced that it is a work of art, it still functions quite readily at ground level as a retail market. This proves its vitality. An example of a pathological permanence can be seen in the Alhambra in Granada. It no longer houses either Moorish or Castilian kings, and if we were accepted functionalist and if we accepted functionalist classifications, we would have to say that this building once represented the major function of Granada. It is evident that at Granada we experience the form of the past in a way that is quite different from at Padua. In the first instance, the form of the past has assumed a different function, but is still intimately tied to the city. It has been modified so we can imagine future modifications. Going back to this morning's reading. Uh, in the second, it stands virtually isolated in the city. Nothing can be added. It constitutes, in fact, an experience so essential 
then it cannot be modified. In the sense of the palace of Charles V in Granada must be counted an exception since precisely because since precisely because <laughs> fuck yeah since precisely because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a marathon it lacked this quality it could so easily be destroyed but in both cases the urban artifacts are part of the city that cannot be suppressed because they constitute it in choosing these two examples i have defined a persistent urban artifact as something very similar to a monument I could in fact have spoken of the Doge's Palace in Venice, or at the theater at Nimes, or the Mesquita of Cordoba, and the argument would not change. In fact, I am inclined to believe that the persistence in an urban artifact often causes it to become identified as a monument, um, and that a monument persists in the city both symbolically and physically. A monument's persistence or permanence is a result of its capacity to constitute the city, its history and art, its being and memory. We have just distinguished between a historical or propelling permanence as a form of a past that we still experience and a pathological permanence as something that is isolated and aberrant. In large measure, the pathological form is identifiable because of a particular context. Since context itself can be seen either as the persistence of a function over time or as something isolated from the urban structure, that is, as something which stands outside of technological and social evolution. Context is commonly understood as referring primarily to residential sections of the city, and in this sense, its preservation is counter to the real dynamic of the city. So-called contextual preservation is related to the city in time like the embalmed corpse of a saint to the image of his historical personality. In contextual preservation, there is a sort of urban naturalism at work, which admittedly can give rise to suggestive images. For example, a visit to a dead city is always a memorable experience. But in such cases, we are well outside, we are well outside the realm of a past that we still experience. Naturally then, I am referring mainly to living cities which have an uninterrupted span of development. The problems of dead cities only tan tangentially concern urban science. They are matters for the historian and the archaeologist. It is at best an abstraction to seek to reduce urban artifacts to archaeological ones. Another summary here. So far, we have spoken only of monuments in so much as they are fixed elements of the urban structure, as having a true aesthetic intentionality, but this can be a simplification. The hypothesis of a city as a man-made object and as a work of art attributes as much legitimacy to expression to a house or to any minor work as to a monument. Perhaps this carries us too far afield. I mainly want to establish at this point that the dynamic process of the city tends more to the evolution than preservation, and that in evolution, monuments are not only preserved but continuously presented as propelling elements of development. This is a fact that can be verified. Moreover, I have already attempted to demonstrate how function alone is insufficient to explain the continuity of urban artifacts. If the origin of the typology of urban artifacts is simply function, this hardly accounts for the phenomenon of survival. A function must always be, uh, must always be defined in time and in society. That which closely depends on it is always bound up with its development. An urban artifact determined by one function only cannot be seen as anything other than its explication of that function.
In reality, we frequently continue to appreciate elements whose function has better lost, who has, sorry, whose function has been lost over time. The value of these artifacts often resides solely in their form, which is integral to the general form of the city. It is, so to speak, an invariant of it. Often, too, these artifacts are closely bound up with the constitutive, constitutive <laughs> elements, with the origins of the city, and are included among its monuments. Thus, we can see the importance of the parameter of time in the study of urban artifacts. To think of a persistent urban artifact as something tied to a single period of history constitutes one of the greatest fallacies of urban science. The form of the city is always the form of a particular time of the city, but there are many times in the formation of the city, and a city may change its face even in the course of one man's life, its original references ceasing to exist. As Baudelaire wrote, the old Paris is no more. The form of a city changes more quickly, alas, than the heart of a mortal. We look upon the houses for, of our childhood as unbelievably old, and often the city erases our memories as it changes. The various considerations we have put forward in this chapter now permit us to attempt a specific reading of the city. The city will be seen as an architecture of different parts or components. These are principally the dwelling and primary elements. It is this reading that I will develop in the following pages, beginning with the concept of the study area, since dwellings cover the major portion of the urban surface and rarely have a character of permanence, their evolution should be studied together with the area upon which they are found. Thus, I will speak of the dwelling area. I will also consider the decisive role played by primary elements in the formation and constitution of the city. This role tends to be revealed through their character of permanence in the case of the monuments, which as we see, as we will see, have a very particular relationship to primary elements. Farther on, we will investigate what effective role primary elements have in the structure of urban artifacts, and for what reasons urban artifacts can be said to be works of art, or at least how the overall structure of the city is similar to a work of art. Our previous analysis should enable us to recognize this overall composition of the city and reasons for its architecture. There's nothing new in all of this, <laughs> yet, in attempting, <laughs> yet in attempting to formulate a theory of urban artifacts that is consistent with reality, I have benefited from highly diverse sources. From these, I consider some of the themes I have discussed, function, permanence, classification, and typology, to be particularly significant. Wow. Yes. Great job <laughs> all around. That's better than reading. So... Um, yeah, this is a longer one than we've done. If you've made it this far, like, bravo. Thank you for... <laughs> if you made it to the end. Yeah, I've made it to the end. Well, we've got a specific, uh, some other, we'll figure out some other prize for you. But if you really did listen all the way, thank you so much. Uh, the, uh, the contest. What's it called? Oh, it's, it's like barely a contest. We'll be posting it up. Well, it's barely a contest. You'll blair something. Okay, we're done with talking, I think. Just, uh, yeah, so just check the Facebook things. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding, I didn't. Got some people. So, again, thank you. I'm Travis Cook Young. Andrew Zitlow. And your guest for today, Paulette Cameron. Thank you for listening to Ghost of Magic. <laughs> Keep it creepy. <laughs> Keep it scary. Two hours in. Thank you. Good night.